Herlock Sholmes arrives too late. It was Miss Nellie. Miss Nellie, his fellow passenger on the transatlantic steamer who had been the subject of his dreams on that memorable voyage, who had been a witness to his arrest, and who, rather than betray him, had dropped into the water the Kodak in which he had concealed the banknotes and diamonds. Miss Nellie! That charming creature, the memory of whose face had sometimes cheered, sometimes saddened the long hours of imprisonment. It was such an unexpected encounter that brought them face to face in that castle at that hour of the night, that they could not move, nor utter a word. They were amazed, hypnotized, each at the sudden apparition of the other. Trembling with emotion, Miss Nellie staggered to a seat. He remained standing in front of her. Gradually he realized the situation, and conceived the impression he must have produced at that moment, with his arms laden with knick-knacks, and his pockets and a linen sack overflowing with plunder. He was overcome with confusion, and he actually blushed to find himself in the position of the thief caught in the act. To her henceforth he was a thief, a man who puts his hand in another's pocket, who steals into houses and robs people while they sleep. A watch fell upon the floor, then another. These were followed by other articles which slipped from his grasp one by one. Then, actuated by a sudden decision, he dropped the other articles into an armchair, emptied his pockets, and unpacked his sack. He felt very uncomfortable in Nellie's presence, and stepped towards her with the intention of speaking to her, but she shuddered, rose quickly, and fled toward the salon. The portier closed behind her. He followed her. She was standing, trembling, and amazed at the sight of the devastated room. He said to her at once, Tomorrow at three o'clock, everything will be returned. The furniture will be brought back. She made no reply, so he repeated, I promise it, tomorrow at three o'clock, nothing in the world could induce me to break that promise. Tomorrow at three o'clock. Then followed a long silence that he dared not break, whilst the agitation of the young girl caused him a feeling of genuine regret. Quietly, without a word, he turned away, thinking, I hope she will go away. I can't endure her presence. But the young girl suddenly spoke and stammered, Listen. Footsteps. I hear someone. He looked at her with astonishment. She seemed to be overwhelmed by the thought of approaching peril. I don't hear anything, he said. But you must go. You must escape. Why should I go? Because you must. Oh, do not remain here another minute. Go. She ran quickly to the door leading to the gallery and listened. No, there was no one there. Perhaps the noise was outside. She waited a moment, then returned reassured. But Arsène Lupin had disappeared. As soon as Monsieur Devon was informed of the pillage of his castle, he said to himself, It was Velmont who did it, and Velmont is Arsène Lupin. That theory explained everything, and there was no other plausible explanation. And yet the idea seemed preposterous. It was ridiculous to suppose that Velmont was anyone else than Velmont, the famous artist and club fellow of his cousin Destivant. So when the captain of the gendarmes arrived to investigate the affair, Devon did not even think of mentioning his absurd theory. Throughout the forenoon there was a lively commotion at the castle. The gendarmes, the local police, the chief of police from Dieppe, the villagers, all circulated to and fro in the halls, examining every nook and corner that was open to their inspection. 
The approach of the maneuvering troops, the rattling fire of the musketry, added to the picturesque character of the scene. The preliminary search furnished no clue. Neither the doors nor windows showed any signs of having been disturbed. Consequently, the removal of the goods must have been effected by means of the secret passage. Yet there were no indications of footsteps on the floor, nor any unusual marks upon the walls. Their investigations revealed, however, one curious fact that denoted the whimsical character of Arsène Lupin. The famous chronique of the 16th century had been restored to its accustomed place in the library, and beside it there was a similar book, which was none other than the volume stolen from the National Library. At eleven o'clock the military officers arrived. Devon welcomed them with his usual gaiety, for no matter how much chagrin he might suffer from the loss of his artistic treasures, his great wealth enabled him to bear his loss philosophically. His guests, Monsieur and Madame Dandrol and Miss Nelly, were introduced, and it was then noticed that one of the expected guests had not arrived. It was Horace Velmont. Would he come? His absence had awakened the suspicions of Monsieur Devon. But at twelve o'clock he arrived. Devon exclaimed, "'Ah, here you are!' "'Why, am I not punctual?' asked Velmont. "'Yes, and I'm surprised that you are, after such a busy night. I suppose you know the news.' "'What news?' "'You have robbed the castle.' "'Nonsense!' exclaimed Velmont, smiling. "'Exactly as I predicted. But first escort Miss Underdown to the dining-room. Mademoiselle, allow me—' He stopped as he remarked the extreme agitation of the young girl. Then, recalling the incident, he said, "'Ah, of course, you met Arsène Lupin on the steamer before his arrest, and you are astonished at the resemblance. Is that it?' She did not reply. Valmont stood before her, smiling. He bowed. She took his proffered arm. He escorted her to her place and took his seat opposite her. During the breakfast, the conversation related exclusively to Arsène Lupin, the stolen goods, the secret passage, and Herlock Sholmes. It was only at the close of the repast, when the conversation had drifted to other subjects, that Velmont took any part in it. Then he was, by turns, amusing and grave, talkative and pensive, and all his remarks seemed to be directed to the young girl. But she, quite absorbed, did not appear to hear them. Coffee was served on the terrace overlooking the court of honor and the flower garden in front of the principal façade. The regimental band played on the lawn, and scores of soldiers and peasants wandered through the park. Miss Nelly had not forgotten for one moment Lupin's solemn promise. Tomorrow at three o'clock everything will be returned. At three o'clock! And the hands of the great clock in the right wing of the castle now marked twenty minutes to three. In spite of herself, her eyes wandered to the clock every minute. She also watched Velmont, who was calmly swinging to and fro in a comfortable rocking chair. Ten minutes to three, five minutes to three, Nellie was impatient and anxious. Was it possible that Arsène Lupin would carry out his promise at the appointed hour, when the castle, the courtyard, and the park were filled with people, and at the very moment when the officers of the law were pursuing their investigations? And yet... Arsène Lupin had given her his solemn promise. It will be exactly as he said, thought she, so deeply was she impressed with the authority, energy, and assurance of that remarkable man.
To her, it no longer assumed the form of a miracle, but on the contrary, a natural incident that must occur in the ordinary course of events. She blushed and turned her head. Three o'clock. The great clock struck slowly. One, two, three. Horace Velmont took out his watch, glanced at the clock, then returned the watch to his pocket. A few seconds passed in silence. And then the crowd in the courtyard parted to give passage to two wagons that had just entered the park gate, each drawn by two horses. They were army wagons, such as are used for the transportation of provisions, tents, and other necessary military stores. They stopped in front of the main entrance, and a commissary sergeant leapt from one of the wagons and inquired for Monsieur de Vannes. A moment later, that gentleman emerged from the house, descended the steps, and, under the canvas covers of the wagons, beheld his furniture, pictures, and ornaments carefully packaged and arranged. When questioned, the sergeant produced an order that he had received from the officer of the day. By that order, the second company of the 4th Battalion was commanded to proceed to the crossroads of Halleux in the Forest of Arcs, gather up the furniture and other articles deposited there, and deliver the same to Monsieur Georges de Vannes, owner of the Tibermenil Castle, at three o'clock. Signed, Colonel Beauvel. At the crossroads, explained the sergeant, we found everything ready, lying on the grass, guarded by some passers-by. It seemed very strange, but the order was imperative. One of the officers examined the signature. He declared it a forgery, but a clever imitation. The wagons were unloaded, and the goods restored to their proper places in the castle. During this commotion, Nelly had remained alone at the extreme end of the terrace, absorbed by confused and distracted thoughts. Suddenly she observed Velmont approaching her. She would have avoided him, but the balustrade that surrounded the terrace cut off her retreat. She was cornered. She could not move. A gleam of sunshine passing through the scant foliage of a bamboo lighted up her beautiful golden hair. Someone spoke to her in a low voice. Have I not kept my promise? Arsène Lupin stood close to her. No one else was near. He repeated in a calm, soft voice. Have I not kept my promise? He expected a word of thanks, or at least some slight movement that would betray her interest in the fulfillment of his promise, but she remained silent. Her scornful attitude annoyed Arsène Lupin, and he realized the vast distance that separated him from Miss Nelly now that she had learned the truth. He would gladly have justified himself in her eyes, or at least pleaded extenuating circumstances, but he perceived the absurdity and futility of such an attempt. Finally, dominated by a surging flood of memories, he murmured, Ah, how long ago that was. You remember the long hours on the deck of the Provence? Then you carried a rose in your hand, a white rose, like the one you carry today. I asked you for it. You pretended you did not hear me. After you had gone away, I found the rose, forgotten, no doubt, and I kept it. She made no reply. She seemed to be far away. He continued, In memory of those happy hours, forget what you have learned since. Separate the past from the present. Do not regard me as the man you saw last night, but look at me, if only for a moment, as you did in those far-off days when I was Bernard d'Andrézy for a short time. Will you, please? She raised her eyes and looked at him as he had requested. 
Then, without saying a word, she pointed to a ring he was wearing on his forefinger. Only the ring was visible, but the setting, which was turned toward the palm of his hand, consisted of a magnificent ruby. Arsène Lupin blushed. The ring belonged to George Devon. He smiled bitterly and said, You are right. Nothing can be changed. Arsène Lupin is now and always will be Arsène Lupin. To you he cannot be even so much as a memory. Pardon me. I should have known that any attention I may now offer you is simply an insult. Forgive me. He stepped aside, hat in hand. Nelly passed before him. He was inclined to detain her and beseech her forgiveness, but his courage failed, and he contented himself by following her with his eyes, as he had done when she descended the gangway to the pier at New York. She mounted the steps leading to the door and disappeared within the house. He saw her no more. A cloud obscured the sun. Arsène Lupin stood watching the imprints of her tiny feet in the sand. Suddenly he gave a start. Upon the box which contained the bamboo beside which Nelly had been standing, he saw the rose, the white rose which he had desired but dared not ask for. Forgotten, no doubt, it also, but how? Designedly or through distraction? He seized it eagerly. Some of its petals fell to the ground. He picked them up, one by one, like precious relics. Come, he said to himself, I have nothing more to do here. I must think of my safety before Herlock Shulmus arrives. The park was deserted, but some gendarmes were stationed at the park gate. He entered a grove of pine trees, leaped over the wall, and, as a short cut to the railroad station, followed a path across the fields. After walking about ten minutes, he arrived at a spot where the road grew narrower and ran between two steep banks. In this ravine, he met a man traveling in the opposite direction. It was a man about fifty years of age, tall, smooth-shaven, and wearing clothes of a foreign cut. He carried a heavy cane, and a small satchel was strapped across his shoulder. When they met, the stranger spoke with a slight English accent. "'Excuse me, monsieur. Is this the way to the castle?' "'Yes, monsieur, straight ahead, and turn to the left when you come to the wall. They are expecting you.' "'Ah!' Yes, my friend Devon told us last night that you were coming, and I am delighted to be the first to welcome you. Herlock Sholmes has no more ardent admirer than myself. There was a touch of irony in his voice which he quickly regretted, for Herlock Sholmes scrutinized him from head to foot with such a keen, penetrating eye that Arsène Lupin experienced the sensation of being seized, imprisoned, and registered by that look more thoroughly and precisely than he had ever been by a camera. My negative is taken now, he thought, and it will be useless to use a disguise with that man. He would look right through it. But I wonder, has he recognized me? They bowed to each other as if about to part. But at that moment they heard a sound of horses' feet, accompanied by a clinking of steel. It was the gendarmes. The two men were obliged to draw back against the embankment amongst the brushes to avoid the horses. The gendarmes passed by, but as they followed each other at a considerable distance, they were several minutes in doing so. And Lupin was thinking... It all depends on that question. Has he recognized me? If so, he will probably take advantage of the opportunity. It is a trying situation. 
When the last horseman had passed, Herlock Sholmus stepped forth and brushed the dust from his clothes. Then, for a moment, he and Arsene Lupin gazed at each other, and if a person could have seen them at that moment, it would have been an interesting sight, and memorable as the first meeting of two remarkable men, so strange, so powerfully equipped, both of superior quality, and destined by fate through their peculiar attributes to hurl themselves one at the other like two equal forces that nature opposes, one against the other in the realms of space. Then the Englishman said, Thank you, monsieur. They parted. Lupin went toward the railway station, and Herlock Sholmes continued on his way to the castle. 